Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and we are super excited to share our conversation with GT Dave, aka the King of Kombucha. He's the founder of GT's Kombucha, now known as GT's Living Foods, the number one selling kombucha brand in the world, and the originator of bottled kombucha. Born and raised in LA, GT dropped out of high school and started the company at just 15 years old. And over the past 24 years, they've pioneered and dominated a whole category of beverages that merely didn't exist before GT bottled his first kombucha in 1995. Today, the company is worth over $1 billion. In this episode, we talk to GT about his upbringing and the role spirituality and faith have played throughout his life, dropping out of high school after going through an identity crisis, his thoughts on the education system in America, how going against the grain and challenging the status quo helped him as an entrepreneur, the multiple signals he received that inspired him to start bottling kombucha, and some of the early challenges he faced getting the business off the ground. Towards the end, GT also shares what some of his personal aspirations are outside of running his company and how he got into art collecting and architecture. Here we go. Yeah, so I was the youngest of three. So as you probably know, when you're the baby, you're kind of a mama's boy. So I was no exception. Um, in addition to that, my parents were very spiritual so and semi-religious, so they raised me Catholic. I was I went to Catholic school for the first eight years of my mm. academic life, but during that time, I was also exposed to India, which kind of gave me more of an Eastern um, point of view as well as a philosophy. So that was an interesting upbringing. And in addition to that, of course, I was raised vegetarian. Yeah. Um, the moment I was out of the womb, I was basically a vegetarian. My mother actually was a vegetarian when she was pregnant with me. Mm. Wow. And and where's your like where are your parents from or your family's background? Do they have any Indian in them at all? Or no, just, not at all. How do they even get into like the Indian culture? And you know what it really was is that my mother was always super curious about as silly as it sounds, but very curious about the meaning of life. Right, so she was she was into um, religion because she appreciated the historical qualities of it, into spirituality, um, looked studied Hinduism and Buddhism and kind of just different ways of thinking because she, I think she was trying to find this common denominator across all beliefs and all faiths, mm. and um, because of kind of her open mindedness, a friend of hers and my father kind of um, mentioned to them this holy man that lived in India and his name was Satya Sai Baba. And he wasn't a god and it wasn't a religion by any stretch of the imagination, but it was really way just a, kind of this enlightened being who was sharing a certain kind of consciousness that mm. my parents really resonated with. So over the course of probably 10 years, we would go almost every other summer to India, oh, wow. which was very bizarre for me at the time because, again, a lot of my friends and peers were going to, like, Hawaii for summer vacation, and I was going to India. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I'm very grateful for that exposure because it really did kind of frame my point of view, um, kind of the, the East for meets sure. West right. type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Did you grow up in L.A.? Yes, born and raised. Wow. Uh, so I grew up, I've only lived in two places in my life. So I grew up in Los Angeles, in, in Bel Air, the slums of Bel Air. Yeah. Um, and then here in Beverly Hills, where I currently live. Right. Was it, was it a more humble upbringing? Or would you say that your parents were more middle class or upper class? I mean, like, how did you grow up? I mean, like, in a family setting? You know, it was a mixed bag. I mean, I, I say it half jokingly when I say the slums of, of Bel Air, mm. because Bel Air, for a lot of people that don't know, is actually a large, um, you know, area of Los Angeles that has so many different right. kind of demographics. Mm -hmm. And so we were actually more on the modest side of, of Bel Air. And the reason why I loved growing up in Bel Air is 
our home was very modest, number one. Number two is we felt kind of removed from Los Angeles. Mm. You, I would look out my bedroom window and I'd just see nothing but mountains and canyons, right. no city lights. Yeah. The, you know, there was no liquor stores or clubs that were in reach to me. So it kind of kept myself and my brothers somewhat in this unique kind of position where we were um, in L.A. but not of L.A., if right. that makes sense. So right. I think our consciousness was different. Um, so, yeah, so I mean... LA can be a lot of things, but I think the way I was raised is I was able to kind of get the best of both worlds. Right. Not super sheltered, but not super kind of exposed to things too soon. Right. Mm -hmm. Did you end up going to private school for like most of your life? Again, mixed bag. So like the Catholic school that I referenced was a private school, right. but it wasn't actually like an elitist type right, private right, right. school. Mm -hmm. Very um, different. It was very different. I mean, the annual... Um, Tuition was five hundred dollars, so it was very, very low. And yeah, a lot of versus their, like Harvard Westlake, which we're talking like fifty thousand yes, dollars, yeah, you know, or like St. Paul, or right. Loyola Marymount, all these other kind right. of schools that were like thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars. Right. So I actually grew up with um, a very diverse kind of classroom, mm. right? A lot of my friends were Hispanic or Asian or African American. I think, to be quite honest, I think uh, being white or Caucasian was actually more the minority, believe mm. it or not. So I was in Catholic school for eight years. I was actually an altar boy. Um, you know, as you probably know, growing up in Catholic school is very interesting because there were nuns, there were right. priests, there were monsignors, and mm -hmm. we would pray in before every class. We would walk to church um, each day for Lent. So it was a very interesting, very kind of militant and rigid kind yeah. of environment. I went to, I went to a Baptist school for a few years. It was totally different than that, but it was, you know, we had, we had like, you know, church and yeah. the, you know, we had pastors and not nuns, but a little bit, a little bit different, but yeah, I feel you. It's like, it's very, very different than the traditional school experience. Oh, totally. Did you have a uniform? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uniforms, to be quite honest, are like a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't, the thought process of like going to school and what you're going to wear is completely right. simplified, right? You're, yeah. you're wearing more or less the same thing to your peers. So you all kind of feel united in that respect. Not only that, I mean, and I went to, I went to a private Armenian school and then I went to Catholic high school. And, uh, you know, now that I think back to it, it's more like an equalizer, right? Absolutely. The, the, you don't see a class difference or yeah. you don't see, you know, just one person as something else. Everybody's the same. Like yes. you're going through the same things, the same schedule. You're wearing the same clothes. I don't care how rich you are, or how poor you are. Yes. When you come here, this is who you if, are. If you showed that off, it was subtle. Like it wasn't like your shirt or your pants. It was like a bracelet or like a, a necklace. Well, it was something. actually, at my school, it was just your shoes. <laughs> right. Or shoes. Exactly. Your shoes. Because you yeah. had like Air Jordans or something exactly. that was considered like cool. But it, at, at um, Good Shepherd, which is the Catholic mm -hmm. school that I went to, like you couldn't wear any jewelry. Right. Right, you couldn't even like try to personalize your uniform by rolling up your sleeves. Yeah. Like the nuns would come at you with a ruler. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, to your point, it really yeah. equalized you, and there was sure. no real overt indication of any kind of wealth or socioeconomics mm. or anything that I think in more of a public school environment or even different private schools you kind of see the, the um, call it the food chain. Mm. But um, and then again, I kind of experienced the opposite side of the spectrum when I went to high school. Right. So when I graduated Good Shepherd after eighth grade, I went to Beverly Hills High, which is a public school. Um, and you, but it's you, like a private public school. Well, you would be surprised. So Beverly was a really interesting experience for me. And in fact, it kind of um, was a little bit of shell shock for me because mm -hmm. number one, I was exposed to now people who didn't have to wear uniforms. And there are so many different genres of, of style and, mm. and different personalities that came along with it. You had your preppy kids, you had your theater kids, you had your athletes, you had your little wannabe gangsters, you had all this stuff. 
Um, also, it was it was a very different environment. I mean, like I remember when I first started going to Beverly, like it was so incredibly obvious the amount of drug use oh, yeah. that was going on in school. I mean, and it was almost like celebrated. It was a badge of honor. Like these kids would walk around with like giant marijuana leaves like on their shirt and <laughs> on their bags. I, I remember they'd those. be drawing it. I mean, one of my <laughs> first friends is um, his name was Gabe, but his like nickname was shroom because he would <laughs> run around the neighborhood and he would tag walls in the alleyways with this mushroom logo and i was like who are these kids i mean they're acting like little gangsters but i last my check this is beverly hills <laughs> did you ever feel like you were rebellious because i mean going to catholic school i saw a lot of the kids around me were just like rebellious yeah you know they want to break the rules like frankly i was one of them like we were not allowed to be you know we had to be clean shaven mondays wednesdays fridays yeah three days a week I'm Middle Eastern. Like I shave like in the morning and at night it's already like right. what you have on right now. <laughs> right? Like that five o'clock after shadow. So I used to get detentions at the detentions. Did you ever feel that way? Like that you want to kind of go against the oh, 100%. system? Yeah. I mean, I'm the type of guy that I just don't conform just to conform. I always and I, I think I take this I get this from my mother. So I always ask the question, but why? Right. Why do I have to do this? Why are you saying this is the way to be? Why is this your point of view? So everything from again at the Good Shepherd, like they would segregate at recess guys from girls. And I tended to gravitate to the girls. So I was like, why why are you able to tell me who I can be friends with? Mm. Right. Right? Um I would try to wear these friendship bracelets like we were talking earlier, <laughs> right. and they would get scissors and cut them off right, of yep. me. And I would almost continue to get the bracelets because I, it was a little bit of an FU <laughs> right. to the the nuns and all of them because it felt, to be honest, a little communistic. Right. And I, I, I'm a big believer in personal expression and freedom of, of to be who you are. And it felt very oppressive. Um, ironically, I was an altar boy. <laughs> so I, I, I think I unconsciously did that because I really wanted to be on the inside and maybe understand what was going on. I saw a lot. I mean, you would see the priest that would drink a lot, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Like there was one famous priest that whenever we were going to pour the wine, I mean, we were only supposed to pour like an <laughs> ounce and he had to pour like eight <laughs> ounces. Yeah. And he would always like signal yeah. that he wanted more. So it was this really interesting world. And what it reminded me or, or made me realize early on is that every walk of life has kind of its flaws, right? right? Like no matter how, and especially the ones that are so you know, confident and proud that they are the one and their path is it. Mm. When you really start scratching the surface, you're like, no, you're just as flawed right. as we Another are. Another thing is like, you know, it's, it's a system, right? There's different parts of the system, right? There's like, you know, in, in Christianity, for example, it's like you read the Bible, you pray, you go to church. Those are, and, and, and oftentimes the narrative is like, if you don't do one of those things, then you're not really, good you know, you're not yeah. a good Christian. And, and yeah. if you're not all in, then you're not in at all. Yes. And I think that this, that's the same of any like, you know, I don't. Want, I don't want to compare it to like cults because cults are like has a negative tenant connotation. But it's similar. It's like if you're not all in, you're you're not in at all. And so I think that, like to your point, you know, being a little bit more allowing of of creativity and and personal expression and and kind of you know not being so strict on all levels, I think is also important because you like people become rebellious if not, yes, right? Yes, so, 100%. And in my yeah. opinion, that's the difference between being religious and being spiritual. Right. Because yeah. again, I'm a big believer in faith. I think right. we all have to believe that there's something bigger than us and that we came here for a reason. Or else you're just it, like a flaming narcissist. Exactly. Yeah. You're just, you're like you a, think you are a the parasite, highest. to be honest. Right. Yeah. So, so I definitely appreciate that about religion and spirituality, that they encourage faith. For sure. And some kind of belief. 
But the, in, again, what makes religion slightly different is what you were just referencing, the amount of judgment. Yep. Right? If you don't do this, yeah. you will go to hell. Or if you don't exactly. do this, you are a sinner. Whereas in spirituality, it's really about just love. Yeah. And kindness and kind of like the fundamentals that I think make us right. all better people. Or like, if you're, or, like, or like if you're interested in learning about other religions, like like right. you mentioned, like, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism, like if, you know, if there's anything you can take away from that and you want to apply it to your life, it's like, well, it's wrong. Like yes. you have to be fully yeah. Christian. Yeah. It's, it's all this or <laughs> yeah. nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, being spiritual and having faith is something that is just within you. It's like an individual thing, right? All the things that surround it, it's almost like the business that's been created. Like it's the business of religion or the business of faith is equal to religion where people, men or men, women made the laws of what it's supposed to be like. Right. Right. Man-made laws. Exactly. Yeah. Man-made laws, not anything beyond that. Yeah. We can talk about religion all day, but you know, the <laughs> reason I think that this was interesting is because the reason I asked the whole rebellious question is because it ties directly to entrepreneurship, right? Like going against what society tells you to do, right? This is how you're supposed to live your life. This is the career you're supposed to have. And then boom, yes. maybe you'll become successful. Maybe you won't. How did that, you know, spirituality and play a role in your life after high school, after college? What, how did, how did that grow or how did it not grow? You know, and how, you know, how did it affect your life? Well, I mean, it incredibly affected my life because my point of view from being a young child, being exposed to everything that I just described, and becoming a young adult is I was already kind of programmed or wired to just challenge things. And it did create a little bit of this rebellious quality. So whenever I would look at more of a traditional way of living or a conventional way of living, I would always ask questions like, but what if? And it, again, it came down to starting with food. Because I was raised a vegetarian, and then all my friends would many times make fun of me or even bully me for not having the chicken sandwich and the carton of milk and all those more kind of typical foods. And so, you know, I started to say to them and even say to myself, but just because we're being told that this is the way we're supposed to eat, like, why? Right? Like, why, why, do, we, why do we go to McDonald's? I understand it tastes great, but can we kind of start... At, you know, presenting questions of like, is there a different way of doing this? And so that's definitely played a role in everything that I do. And of course, eventually starting my company, because if you think about it, I mean, starting a company from this fermented tea called kombucha that is radically different than anything that was out there at the time, you really have to have this braveness, right? Mm. This kind of progressive way of thinking of like, you know what, I'm not going to drink the Snapple. I'm not going to drink the Coke. I'm not going to drink the Gatorade. I, I want to do something different. And again, if it has um, good intentions and, and nutrition and will provide benefits to people, then what's wrong with it? Yeah. Mm. So it gave me that sense of independence and bravery. When you were in high school, was there anything you like, I don't know if you already had the idea for kombucha, bottling kombucha, but did you like have a vision for what you wanted to do for the rest of your life, like a career path or something like that? Or were you just playing around? Yes and no. So um, I was a little bit lost in high school because yeah. again, the, the shell shock that I experienced going from Catholic private school to a public school really kind of rattled my cage. And I, I kind of went through an identity crisis because I think I spent, um, you know, the first half of high school trying to fit in mm -hmm. and be like everybody. And I, I knew everybody could kind of sense it. 
And, you know, you weren't term, being authentic. I wasn't being authentic. And, you know, remember the term poser? Mm-hmm. Like being a poser is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. and so I was a poser. Um, so I spent, again, my first half of my high school being a poser and the second half trying to escape and like remove myself from that. Because again, once people see that you're pretending, they make fun of you and hence comes the bullying. Right. Mm. But so what that created though, to your um, question is it, it gave me this desire to get out. Like I was so incredibly unhappy with that world and that environment that I was in. And again, I was asking myself, why? Why do I have to be here? You know, what am I going to get out of this? And, and really, what kind of person is this turning me into? And it got to a point where I was, you know, doing all the drugs that all my friends were doing, like the pot, the acid, you name it. I was ditching a lot of class. I was really going nowhere fast. Mm. So I had this kind of rude awakening once I had this session with my college counselor. And she basically told it to me straight. She was like, listen, sweetheart, you're going nowhere, <laughs> like nowhere fast. So I don't See, know. Like my college counselor told me the same thing, but I didn't feel as genuine. Really? Like it felt like more like attacking me. I was kind of just like, I walked out. I was like, fuck you. No, this, this was like, a, a, this was a pity session. She was like, oh, sweetheart. Because she asked me initially, she's like, so what do you want to do with your life? Like, what are you thinking? I was like, I don't know, you know, like doctor, lawyer, something like that. And she's like, not with these grades. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to strongly recommend that you kind of scale down and scale yeah. back. And it's just crazy to think that even in high school, like, you, you know, to your point of like, why? Like, why are we supposed to know what we're doing when we're 17 or 18 years old? Yeah. You literally have not been experienced. You haven't been exposed to anything at that it's point. True. How the hell do you know what you want to do? Like, frankly, there's a lot of careers that I learn about right now that I had never heard about before yeah. that I would have never considered because the only thing you know is doctor, lawyer, engineer. That's all you see. Out I would call it a blessing to go through an identity crisis in high school because you sort of skip like so yeah. many people waste their money, waste <laughs> their time going to college and studying something that they don't even care about. Right. Um, where I feel like they could use those that time and that money to do something a lot more beneficial to their lives. So it's kind of, I, I consider it a blessing because like I kind of went through the same thing where, um, you know, I, I, I you know, I fit in for a while. And then at some point I felt like I didn't fit in anymore because my mindset was just totally different. Right. Absolutely. And so I've had this similar experience, like my whole senior year, I didn't even, I barely went to school. I went to school for like maybe, you know, two months of the year. Uh-huh. Cause I just hated it. I wanted to leave. I wanted to do my own thing. Yeah. And so, um, I think it's, I think it's great. I think a lot of high school students should ask Go themselves, yeah, ask themselves like, <laughs> oh, no. what, what do I, what do I really care about? What do I want to do? It's true. And I think the academic system needs to change. I mean, I think when you first join high school, they really should talk to you and find out what your interests are and make certain recommendations. Because unfortunately, they recommend more of the um, traditional or, or generic path of like mm. English, history, these things. But they don't encourage like, hey, what about science? What about arts? What about engineering? What about something that, again, starts working different parts of your brain that perhaps you'll wake up and be like, oh my God, I really love this and I'm really good at it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't have that. And oh, by the way, I mean, I'm sure you have seen this in your own personal life, but it's it's more common than not that those that really peaked in high school don't go anywhere afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they kind of reach their highest point and they, you know, are used to kind of things being handed to them, but that's mm. not how it is in the real world. Right. The real world, you got to hustle. Yeah. Yep. And it's, and it's only getting harder. And I think that, you know, being flexible is important. Like, you know, those that were just like, even in college, like they're like, I'm going to be like a neuroplastic, whatever the hell surgeon. It's like, okay, how are you so sure that in eight years, like that's something you want to do? Oh, like, yeah. How do you know that? You know? Yeah. You've been told you want to do that, and people are like, you're going to make good money doing that. But that's all you know, yeah, right? You've never been able to explore beyond that because your parents or others in your family or whatever friend groups have said, oh, you know, 
Do you argue all the time? You should be an attorney. And to that point, oh, you know, exactly. taking advice from um, whether it's parents or people that are much, much older than you um, is a great thing. But at some point, like, you have to take it with a grain of salt because I read something recently which I thought was interesting. It's like, how quickly is the world changing on a daily basis? Like, technology, like, opportunity, everything is changing. And so their mindset is a lot more kind of like, you know, 20, 30 years ago that maybe those things were successful back then. They don't really know where things are going as much as you might know, just yeah. hearing from your friends or just your peers that are similar aged as you. So um, I don't know. I think I think it is something that could have a lot of value, but it should be taken with a grain of salt too. No, 100%. Yeah. So what did you do after this identity crisis? Well, so what happened was, so I actually dropped out of high school. Oh. Yeah, so I approached my father. And it was actually after that fateful conversation with my college counselor <laughs> where, you know, I, what she said really resonated with me. And I, I thought to myself, like, wow, this is really interesting. She said, I'm literally going nowhere. And then I kind of reflected on how I was raised, again, very spiritual, about making the world a better place and, you know, karma and living a selfless life. And I thought, wow, am I really living my life that way? And it was obvious that I wasn't. And I then started to contemplate, well, why is it? And then I realized I'm unhappy. I don't like high school. I don't like my peers. I'm now being bullied. I'm ditching school. I'm, I am going nowhere fast. How do I change that? And so then I had this awakening of I need to leave. I need to change my environment. So I went to my father and I said, Dad, I'm not doing well in school. I'm very unhappy. What I'd really like to do is take my GED leave high school and start city college. Because to me, I'll be in an environment with other individuals that want to be there versus have to be there. Mm. And I'll be able to explore the academic world much differently than you can in high mm. school, where everything's kind of force-fed to you. Right. And again, I was expecting my father to be like, son, that's a ridiculous idea. Go to your room and shut up. Um, but instead, he was like, you know, son, I think that's a really interesting idea. And he said, you know, there's some incredible world leaders, and he referenced like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, that at one point in their life, woke up and said, I don't need to be on this more conventional path. I have ideas in my head that I want to explore and pursue now, and therefore I will. Hmm. And he said, so I encourage you to do that. He said, so I'll allow you to leave high school early on one condition, that you don't fuck up, right? That you don't use this as an excuse to party and right. slack off and whatever. And so I honored his words, and I took my GED, and I enrolled in Santa Monica City College. And around this time, now, excuse me, prior to this time, my parents had been making and drinking kombucha. So kombucha was already in our household. And then around this time that, again, I'm leaving high school, my mother was then diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. So a lot was happening. This is the summer of um, 1994 oh. when um, everything was happening. It was actually earlier, but when I got the idea to start bottling, it was in the summer of 1994. And a lot was happening, meaning yeah. like I was leaving high school, my world was changing, I started to disassociate myself with any friends that I had at the time. And then, oh, by the way, my mother, who is the more, most important thing to me, just got diagnosed with this very severe condition of breast cancer, which the doctors at the time gave her like six months to live. So it was really like my world was being turned upside down. And, and I believe there's two ways of processing that. One is just like you get depressed yeah. and you just kind of be like, what the hell? Nothing matters and you kind of give up. Or the other is like, you're like, hell no. This is not going to break me. This is not going to get me down. This is not going to have me lose my hope or my faith. And that's kind of the approach I took where I was like, all right, clearly life is such a precious thing. And the people I love, there's no guarantee that they're going to be here forever. And my life could be the same. So it gave me this sense of urgency. And because kombucha had helped my mother, as the doctors had said, it gave me the inspiration to pursue it. 
And that was the blessing. That was the moment of like, I can do this. Nobody's telling me to do it, but I can feel it inside me that it's, it's something that I need to do. How did you have that perspective though? Like being like what you were 16, 17, 18 years yeah. old. How did you have the perspective that I shouldn't be down on myself? I shouldn't lose hope. Instead, I should do the opposite and take advantage of this opportunity. Or I mean, there wasn't really an opportunity, but like I should just have this positive state of mind yeah. and try to be better. Like how, where did you learn that? Where did that come from? Because, I mean, sometimes people that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s don't even have that level of perspective. Yeah. So I'm curious how that was for you and how people that are listening can shift perhaps their mindset even now, like right now when they're listening to this and do something about it. Absolutely. Well, you're right, especially during this time of COVID, I think we're all being exactly. confronted with that, that question. So it was really, honestly, the spirituality. Because when you're raised with kind of a spiritual philosophy, you have this kind of point of view that everything happens for a reason. No matter how good or how bad it is, yeah. it happens for a reason. And you really are kind of um, taught to understand what lesson am I supposed to learn from this? And what lesson am I supposed to learn that I'm going to apply? So it was really that. It's like, all right, so what am I being taught? I'm being taught that life is short. I'm being taught that the, the, the loved ones in my life may not be here as long as I think they are. And then it's also teaching me that there are certain things that are being handed to me or have been handed to me in the form of, again, spirituality or in the form of kombucha or vegetarianism that really is potentially part of my skill set and part of yeah. my blessing and part of my opportunity or part of my role in this world. So it's really understanding, like, again, what ingredients have, has, has the world given me mm. and what am I going to make with it? And that's really what it was. And the, the other thing is, especially when I had dropped out of high school, I, I felt that I was really at rock bottom, right? I had no friends. I had no future. <laughs> it was like basically starting over. And so what also really helped me is there was, in my mind, nothing I could lose. Yeah. Oftentimes I see, you know, it's, I see people that are super motivated, right? Like they're just intrinsically motivated. They're able to, you know, be determined. And uh, like you said, you know, that maybe, maybe they, they have some sort of spiritual, spirituality and faith that helps them get to that point. But what they lack is focus. Yeah. Like they don't know what's next. Where do I, where do I put this energy? Where do I put this motivation towards? Right. And they, you know, it's easy to just spread yourself thin and not really have something to, to go after. And so for you, what was it like? Did, did you have this sort of entrepreneurial bug in you that you that you knew you you just wanted to start a business and that's how you found the opportunity to bottle kombucha, or was it um, something else? Like, how did you figure out? Well, you know what, what it is did? is I think one of the words that best describes me is I'm incredibly passionate mm -hmm. and also very obsessive. So when I find something that I like, I do it 110. percent um, So the fact that again, as I said, I had nothing to lose, it really kind of evened out the playing field to say, all right, you can do whatever you want, right? And there really are no risks. Because part of me was thinking, all right, well, I can stay in school, city college, or I can take a break and pursue this opportunity. And what could happen, right? One is it could go well, and I'd be able to do something that I'm passionate about. Or it won't go well, but at least I'll have lessons learned. And then I can go back to school and apply those new lessons. So I wouldn't really describe myself as an entrepreneur, meaning I didn't have really a business mindset. I had a, a very um, thoughtful mindset where I, everything had to have a meaning and had to have purpose, which I think is important with staying focused. Yeah. 
Yeah. And because this was all going on in the 90s, by the way, so you didn't have like social media and smartphones and all this noise that I think it now kind of distracts people and or gives them this unnecessary pressure. Mm-hmm. Like I have to do these things and oh my God, I have to do that and I have to do this. And next thing you know, you're jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. And so again, the fact that I was at rock bottom, had no friends, didn't have distractions. I'm a passionate person and this thing called kombucha had touched my life as well as my family's life it was it was really the foundation that launched yeah. me into what i the journey that i began and this was before like obviously e-commerce and the internet like even the internet was like barely around at that yeah. time so what was how did it work in terms of if you wanted to create a product and get it into stores like what was the process like i mean there's many different approaches i took the kind of yeah. um let's call it the naive one <laughs> because it was so young right i didn't know I mean, how old were you when you were like even having these thoughts? I was 15. 15. Yeah. So the word entrepreneur wasn't even in my vocabulary, number one. Number two, things that I think more sophisticated and um, more developed people think is like, oh, I need a business plan and I need to put my cost of goods together and I need to get my launching strategy and I have to look at my, I have to start talking to investors and raising money. To me, I was just like, all right, well, I love this stuff and I'm just going to bottle it and share it with people. And the only one non-negotiable that I had at the time was any and every bottle that I made was going to be perfect. Like it was going to be this beautiful, handcrafted, thoughtful, potent, pure beverage that people are truly going to appreciate and enjoy and most importantly benefit from. But why did you think that others would enjoy it? I mean, like, did you know anyone else besides your family that consumed kombucha well yes so because my parents were so such avid drinkers of kombucha i mean they literally drank it every day for the two years before my mother got diagnosed right and i noticed that through that during that process they would expose friends family members co-workers to kombucha and everybody loved it they didn't necessarily love the way it tasted but they loved how it made them feel and I remember there was a point where my parents were giving away kombucha cultures to friends and family members, and everybody was so excited to make it. And then shortly thereafter, they would come back and be like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> this is really hard to make. Like, you know, my mother culture didn't have a baby, my batch got mold, and so forth. And so then shortly after that, people started to say, like, well, how about, like, can we just buy it from you? Yeah. And so that's when the light bulb went off, where, again, I'm thinking, kombucha special. It's hard to make. It helped my mother, but people aren't going to really be able to enjoy it on their own unless yeah. they perhaps buy it from somebody. And I thought, well, maybe that could be me. Yeah. And not necessarily because I saw it as an opportunity to make money. I just found it truthfully to be an opportunity to have some purpose. Also, I can imagine that the, in those days, like there's a big educational piece, right? Like it could, you can like how it feels when you're consuming it at the moment, but knowing like, the benefits and this, this, you know, why it's so good for you and all that kind of stuff is also important too. It's a, like these days, you know, someone can launch a water brand and people know like, okay, like water, just, yeah. you know, hydrates you. It's good for you. Exactly. You know, it could be some special type of water or whatever it might be, but it, there isn't as big of an educational piece. So like, was that difficult in the beginning? Like getting, Absolutely. telling people about what kombucha was, why they should consume it that kind of stuff? For sure. Well, because, I mean, back then, the word probiotics also didn't exist, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, what really helped me kind of spearhead my, call it, confidence and conviction in sharing kombucha with the world is that shortly after my mother was diagnosed, 
you know, up to that point, my parents also didn't know what kombucha was. Like they heard that it was this healthy fermented tea that originated in a small village in Manchuria and everybody who drank it lived into their hundreds and so forth. So they had that kind of anecdotal background, but they didn't really have any of the science. But after my mother was diagnosed and the doctors approached her and said, what are you doing differently in your diet? Because your condition's miraculous. That was kind of the catalyst for my parents to go to the library and actually look up kombucha and look at report reports and books and any articles that were written about it and very quickly they uncovered a lot of information that references kombucha and how it helps the body it helps to alkalize you replenish your digestive system detoxify you so that's where kind of the science started to come into play now when i started bottling kombucha and i had to start interacting with people i had to find a little bit more of a simplified story so what I would talk about is I'd reference like apple cider vinegar, mm-hmm. which is in very much kind of a sister or a cousin to kombucha. Mm-hmm. So now keep in mind, I'm in like hardcore like health food stores in early on. I wasn't in, first of all, there was no Whole Foods at the time. Um, and so here in Los Angeles, you had like Air One, Co-Opportunity, One Life. There was maybe a handful of these really, again, hardcore health food stores that some of them didn't even sell any meat. Like it was tofu, wheatgrass, yeah. things of that Super nature. Super niche. Like, you yes. know, there's a certain type of person that shopped there at that yes, time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So when yeah. you say things like apple cider vinegar, raw apple cider vinegar, the people that shopped in these stores, that immediately like rang a bell. And they're like, oh, of course. Yeah, apple cider vinegar is so healthy. I take a teaspoon or all of that. And in addition, people would start to share with me like, you know, I want to let you know that not only do I love how this makes me feel, but I love the way it, make- it tastes. Like I love a sourness. Because again, the sour profile that kombucha, in my mind, has kind of um, opened up the, the, the doors for, for other products and other categories, really didn't exist back then. It was sweet or it was bland. Like there weren't different flavors. Yeah. There, there, and there, yeah. Was no, there was even no sour beverages. Right, so right. now if you think about it, there's, there's something called switchel, which is like an apple cider vinegar drink. There are the other, a little bit more, call it progressive flavor profiles. But back then, it was rather super yeah. sweet or super bland. But people then started to share with me that there was this niche kind of palette. Like, I actually love sour. And certain people of different ethnicities would say, you know, I grew up in Russia. And this actually reminds me of something that my grandma used to make. Yeah. Some people would, would literally tear up when I would share with them a sample because they're like, I'm, I'm just having this flashback of being a kid in Russia sitting, you know, at the kitchen table with my grandma and she's serving me this fermented tea that she made. So it started to connect a lot of things for people um, on an emotional level, again, on a physical level, because you could start to feel, even if you didn't like the taste of kombucha, after you had your first eight ounces, like you felt better. Right. And that was kind of the, the secret of our success is we didn't advertise, we didn't have to do any of this kind of clever marketing. We just had to get the beverage into people's hands. And once they tried it, they were believers for life. Let's talk about like the early, early days though. I mean, like, what did you even know what you're doing? I mean, like you, no. You're, I mean, you're 15, 16 years old. Like, frankly, you probably didn't. But like, how did you actually get things done? Like, how did you start to bottle it, sell it? Give us kind of like the business behind yeah. it. I mean, it was very much kind of baby steps. So once I realized that I wanted to make kombucha and bottle it, I had to understand. Okay, how does that look? So I started talking to a couple people. So actually, um, the gentleman that gave my family our first kombucha culture, his name is David Otto, and he owns a press juicery here in Los Angeles called the Beverly Hills Juice Club. Mm-hmm. So I approached him and I said, hey, w- can you help me? Like, I want to beverage, uh, excuse me, bottle my kombucha. 
do, do you know where I can find bottles and things of that nature? So he's like, here's a, a bottle supplier. Here's a cap supplier. Um, your labels, you can design on your own computer. Or you can send to somebody. So he gave me a little bit of the framework of how to go about that. And so that's what I did. I found the bottles, the caps, designed my own label. And then I called Air One, who, which was my family's favorite store at the time. And I said, hi, I want to sell my product um, in you your store. You just like cold called them? Or? I just cold called them. So it wasn't like a corporate office. It was just no. like the location. Yeah. And Air One back then, by the way, was just a singular store. So uh, right okay. now they have multiple stores. And they're uh, much more, I think, right. um, They've grown more recently. They've grown a lot. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, we were looking at it. It was like started in 1966. We didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah, it's really remarkable. Yeah. And it's changed hands right. ownership a couple times. So the air one that I was approaching was a different, different. owner than what it currently is. Right. But I remember that fateful day, I literally cold called and somebody like in customer service answered <laughs> and she was like, um, so how can I help you? And I said, so yeah, so I make a, a, a product and I want to sell it in your store. I just want to know what I need to do. And she's like, well, you need a bottle and a label and like a PO box or some kind of address <laughs> and that's it. And in my mind, I'm like, no insurance? Like no license or anything like that Did, so, she was talking in general or like she was like willing to bring your product into air one she was talking in general she oh, was okay. just saying this is this is the criteria She's providing free these, consulting. Are, these are our standards yeah. <laughs> yeah. no standards yeah exactly and so but keep in mind that was a beautiful thing because right. back then sure. people would celebrate like they were working more with farmers right right so they weren't working with these like really it's like farm to shelf yes exactly so i took her advice or her direction and got a p.o box designed my label and bottled my first batch, and then called the store and said, hey, when can I come in to talk to the buyer? And then they asked me what kind of product it is, blah, 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 so they knew what department it would go in. And so then I walked in, dressed in a full suit, right, with my dad, who's a lawyer behind me for, you know, moral support, <laughs> and thought I was going to, like, come in and really just kind of, like, crunch numbers and really do all of that. And it was nothing like that, right? It was literally, like, what do you have, kombucha? What's it about? It's fermented and it's very healthy. What's your price? When you, can you make your first delivery? And it was no longer than probably 30 minutes, maybe even 20 of a conversation. And the next day I delivered my first shipment and I delivered it myself. And I can't tell you the personal um, elation or the personal fulfillment of, of bottling something with your, your, your bare hands, right? So it really is an extension of you. And I polished every single bottle as I put it on the shelf. And I watched like the bottles and the labels kind of sparkle in the store lights. And I just stood there for like almost like an hour, just like staring at the shelves. Because again, it was a very big thing for me to create something personally, to sell it in a store that I would frequent as a kid. So it in many ways felt like a dream come true. And then of course, the most rewarding part was seeing somebody pick up a bottle. Did you just sit there and wait? Yeah. I mean, I probably was probably creepy, right? Because I was yeah. probably like a stalker. Yeah. Were you telling people to like, no, it, I was just, no, I was just standing there. <laughs> but, and I was just this kid, so I was very unassuming. So people would come, they would, you know, grab the bottle. Because it looked very different, by the way. Because at the time, all you had on the store shelves at Air One at the time was really just Edwalla and Naked Juice. Mm. So, and they were these very. One which is officially out of business. Yeah. Yeah, we had Greg on the show uh, not too long ago. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he's heartbroken. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, again, that's a, well, he sold it a while ago, so I think. Well, yeah, but again, it's still <laughs> your, it's still it, your it child, is, it is, right? Yeah, it's right. your legacy, yeah. right? Um, and so, by the way, I'm curious, you know, because you talked about earlier how you know when you were dropping out of high school, your dad just said, you know, don't fuck it up, yeah, right? Don't don't fuck around. How did he feel about you getting your first order into Erewhon? My, initially, my parents were incredibly proud, right? Because they were witnessing firsthand 
their young, you know, baby boy that up to this point was kind of a little bit of a menace, <laughs> like really didn't really have focus. And now all of a sudden I had this awakening where I was now devoting my life to something. And by the way, it, I was all in. I mean, they even witnessed at a certain point, I started going to sleep at four in the afternoon and getting up at midnight so I could devote my time and my time alone to making the kombucha. I didn't want to have any distractions, any interruptions or anything like that. So they were really, I think, impressed with my dedication. Hmm. Now, after the first year, and I was still making it from my home, and I was now selling it to maybe two, maybe three stores, of course, what parents start to think is they go, okay, where is this going? Yeah. Because what my mother and my father were very concerned about is, okay, this is very cute. You found something. You've been now making it for a year, but like, what's like the end game? And I remember my mother sitting me down and she's like, I love what you're doing, but I just want to be honest. Like, I, I don't want to raise a teetotaler. And I was like, mom, I am not a teetotaler. <laughs> I am doing something so much greater than that. Yeah. And so I just told her, I said, listen, give me another year. I promise you, I won't let you down. I promise you I'm onto something great and I just need a little bit more time. But you knew, like you knew at well, that I knew moment. it. Well, yeah. because the reason what gave me the conviction and the confidence that what I was doing was working is that when people would buy my kombucha, they would shortly thereafter kind of call this hotline that was like an answering machine in my bedroom. Was it like on the label? Yeah. yeah. And they would say, hi, um, I just want to let you know that I came across your product today and it, I didn't really know what it was, but it looked really interesting. And so I tried it and it tasted interesting. But I want to let you know that I like feel better. Like I had a headache and it's gone or I had a stomach ache and it's gone. So I just want to say thank you. And that was like incredible to me because I thought, wow, this is an unsolicited reach out from a consumer that is not just saying, oh, like, hey, your stuff is great tasting. Thank you. It was like, it changed me. I mean, for someone to actually reach out, like we know these days, like, I mean, like writing a bad Yelp review or something, right? Yeah. It's like you have to actually be passionate enough about it, whether it's good or bad, to actually do go 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 take those steps to reach out or yes. write a review or all that kind of stuff. Yes. Now that's exactly yeah. it. So it yeah. definitely it was a profound experience for me because it really solidified my path and be like, all right, I think this is special, and so do people too. Mm. How and different the, was the product back then? Like from what was inside the bottle to the bottle to the label? Was it pretty similar to what it, it is now? Yeah, it was or? very similar as far as the liquids concerned. So ever since I started, I was always um, obsessed with quality and mm -hmm. potency because, mm -hmm. again, kombucha is not something you just recreationally drink. Yeah. You don't really drink it primarily for its taste. You drink it for its health benefits. So I wanted to make sure that every – and I saw myself almost like a farmer, right? I would sow my seeds, which were my culture and my batch, and I'd let night nature run its course, and I would harvest, call it the fruit of that batch. And I wanted to make sure it was fresh, it was potent, and whenever possible, it was delicious. So that was kind of the framework that I worked within – um, and so the liquid that I made then is identical to what we make now. I mean, we still use the same size batches as I did starting. It's still very, this labor of love, you know, it's the, our production of our actual kombucha isn't, um, automated in any way. It's very manual. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of human interaction with the culture, which is something that we're very proud of because like most living things in this world, it responds to energy. So the liquid again was identical. Now what was very different was the packaging Yeah, because you know, back then, there weren't a lot of startups in the beverage space. Mm. So you were rather like a Coke or a Pepsi or, or something like that, or you were a juice company. Mm. So I didn't really have access to glass bottles initially. So my first bottle was actually 
the plastic naked juice bottle that we mm-hmm. all know now. Mm-hmm. And my label was this black and white, very like Chanel, Calvin Klein inspired <laughs> label because I really wanted to let yeah, the product yeah. speak for itself. I wasn't yeah. trying to sell a color or a graphic or something. I want to be very minimalistic. And I think that's actually what helped me early on is that it, I stood out on shelf. It looked medicinal. It looked clinical. It looked like something like this has a purpose. This isn't just like a sugary drink. Mm. And so I think that really helped me. And then over time, um, I would say probably about a year and a half later, I was able to bottle it in a glass bottle. So that was my next packaging change. And then I changed the label to a little bit more of an earth tone because I wanted the product to not feel so sterile, but a little bit warmer. And then did that for a while. And then eventually in 2005 is when the dramatic packaging change occurred. Came out with my custom bottle, which is the same bottle that we use today, as well as this kind of Lotus architecture, Mm -hmm. which is on our current label, which in my mind is really was a game changer for us because it was this personal expression and this almost spiritual design that really kind of spoke to people and again allowed us to stand up stand out on shelves it's still very unique it's still like i, I haven't seen anything like it yeah. uh, on I the mean, shelves before yeah but um so uh i guess how long did it take uh, or, or or how how quickly did it were you starting to get into like all these stores was it a pretty quick process or um did it take a while for people to catch on and, yeah. and, and also like at the same time what was going on with the kombucha market in general was it just you or? Yes, it was pretty much me. Yeah. So from 1995, when I sold my first um, shipment to Air One, to about, I would say, 2003, yeah. there was virtually no other brand in the marketplace. Mm. Um, and then 2003, the former owner of Stash Tea came out with a um, pasteurized kombucha called Kombucha Wonder Drink. Mm. So it was the first time that I really was faced with another competitor, right. if you will. But because it was pasteurized, consumers were kind of like, well, then what's the point? Mm. So that product didn't perform too well. So it was still more or less me. And then actually in 2004, 2005, more competition started to enter the marketplace. And there was a reason for that. So what happened was, now to answer your earlier question, it was very slow growth. And that was by design. So even if there was demand in New York, for instance, I would turn it down because I was kind of like this overprotected parent where I really wanted to make sure that I was cultivating and growing these children, if you will, in a very thoughtful and protected way to make sure that I I didn't grow too fast and then ultimately quality would suffer. So I was very kind of obsessed with that. Did you have any mentors who told you that or taught you that that's how you should do it? Or was that just intuition? It was mostly intuition. And then, of course, that fateful day when Edwala faced their first recall. And it was it sent it sent a very strong message to me. So, are you familiar with the Edwala recall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the apple juice, um, they were expanding, right, and went from buying Apple Street from that were prepackaged, like almost what you would buy in a mm-hmm. grocery store, to straight from the farm. And they did that because they wanted to scale. But unfortunately, a little bit of E. coli in the form of fecal matter got in and almost destroyed their business. Yeah. So that to me was very symbolic of okay. Just to, to grow, just to grow doesn't make sense. I want to grow slow and steady because, again, if the product doesn't have the quality and integrity and the safety that it needs, my growth may be short-lived because I may self-sabotage. So that was kind of, again, the framework that I started to live within. Um, and so, again, I was obsessed with quality and, I was, and therefore pretty um, adverse to growing too right. fast for that reason. Very interesting. And I think what speaks to that obsession is also like what we see a lot in, you know, different markets is someone that's introducing a new product or a new way of doing things. Like take an Uber, for example, or a Lyft before them. Um, 
it's oftentimes is one company that goes and does all this work and, and whether it's like changing people's behaviors or minds or educating people or, or lobbying with the government or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, once they figure that out, then these competitors start coming in and now like, it's just, you know, all these companies doing it. But, and and then sometimes we don't, we see that initial company like this, you know, the first mover advantage, if you will, in in business terms is, you know, sometimes they don't survive because some of these companies come in and do it better, but you guys survive because it sounds like you got, you were very, very focused on making the best quality and um, you took your time. You took your time and actually made it a part of people's lives and culture as opposed to just, I don't know, do it, do it another way. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, again, if, if, if I was making something else, if I was just making water, right? At the end of the day, whether it's spring water, high pH water, whatever, it's really just water. And a lot of people can copy you. And, mm-hmm. the, and there's really a semi-low barrier to entrance because everybody knows what water is. But when you're doing kombucha that really has a very specific purpose, right. you, if you deviate from that purpose, you're really no longer honoring what kombucha stands for. And to be completely honest, that philosophy is very rare in the manufacturing world mm-hmm. because manufacturing has this inherent quality of just like mass produce, scale, keep your you know, margins as big as possible, find a way to, again, manufacture this on a, a very high volume because the money comes with volume. But I wasn't programmed that way and I wasn't really thinking that way and I was so obsessed with making kombucha what it's supposed to be and protecting it that I was very much alone in that. And whenever a, a competitor would come into the market, like my first major competitor was, believe it or not, Red Bull. Mm. Red Bull came out with a kombucha, I want to say in like 2005, and it was called Carpe Diem. And it was mass produced. It was super sugary. It basically tasted like a soda. And they were doing everything opposite to what I was doing. Like they had the slick marketing and, mm-hmm. you know, they were doing I mean, Red Bull at the time was like, I mean, they still are, but they were massive. Massive. And they had, I'm sure they had way more money than, I don't know if you oh my God. than you yeah. did to like in yeah. marketing and spend all this. No, so. they were doing like a demo blitz at every store. <laughs> they had advertising everywhere. But again, their big misstep is that they put all their energy on their marketing right. and their kind of sales and their packaging. And they overlooked the most important thing, which is the liquid inside the bottle. When did you know that this was something bigger than just you know what you were doing that this was going to be something that can actually scale yeah did you ever have there was there like a singular moment in time was there more so after 10 years of doing this you're like oh i'm still doing this i'm still here there must be something going on what what was that well there was a lot of things i mean again the, the thing that gave me confidence in what i was doing is again the positive feedback that I would ex- experience right. or hear from my fans and consumers, right? This unsolicited, um, you know, conversation of people saying like, "This makes me feel better. I drink this every day. It's helping me with my digestion and so forth." So that is, in my mind, like priceless. You can't buy that. No advertising or anything can get you there. So that was, again, gave me the confidence and conviction that what I was doing was working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I think once I fixed the packaging. Because I think my packaging was my greatest hurdle early on because what I learned, and I learned it firsthand because I would spend every weekend sampling in all the different stores. And a lot of people would try it and be like, wow, this is so interesting. I would never think that that's what this tastes like based on the packaging. I thought it was like a Snapple or a vitamin water or something like that. So that's when a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, okay, the quality of the liquid is not matching the packaging. Like the packaging needs to be upgraded. So as soon as I did that kind of Lotus design that I referenced in 2005, in 2005, is when I learned that 
that really was like the pinnacle. That was really like the perfect position of this balance of like quality integrity of a beverage and quality integrity of a packaging. And then within months, we went from selling well to selling out. Mm. Like we couldn't make enough. And that was the moment where I was like, wow, this is exciting. And it wasn't because we started selling out because like Oprah did something with it on her TV show or something right. like that, which at the time was really how brands yeah. became big overnight is right. somebody endorsed them or right. somebody was seen drinking them or right. eating that product. With me, it was really the, pa- the product itself was selling itself. And that was pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned like when you started, you didn't really have any like business experience or mindset or anything like that. It was just, you just did it and figured it out along the way. So um, aside from like the packaging and stuff, were there other, like, was there like another big challenge or something at some point that you faced that was like, you just never thought it would get to that point and, and now you had to do it, do something completely, I don't know, different? Well, there, I mean, there's a combination of things. So, I mean, the logistical challenges of making kombucha were always a challenge and continue to be a challenge because, again, we don't see ourselves as beverage manufacturers. In many ways, you know, we don't make our products, we grow them, much like a farmer. So the, the challenge that I recognize even early on is the challenge of space because unlike, for instance, in Edwala or Naked, if they're making a lot of orange juice, they just buy more oranges and they just juice more oranges and they just run their bottling lines longer. With kombucha, if you want to make it, especially the way we make it, which is in small batches, you actually need more land. And so my biggest challenge was that expansion um, kind of restraint that almost every two to three years I found myself in this predicament of I have to expand the footprint of my facility and and specifically the footprint of our fermentation space because that's really our nursery, our mm-hmm. crop, whatever you want to call it. So, so but like, did you have to like go out and raise money to do that or how did no. you figure out how to expand? Well, I mean, because listen, I was very blessed. It was the first two years of my life I was making it of my, my parents' house, right? Yeah. So I, I had zero overhead. And because I was still just a teenager, my parents were paying for my life, so I didn't have really didn't have any bills. Mm. So every single penny that I made for those first two years, I reinvested in the company. So when it was time to move out of the house and get a commercial facility, I didn't need an investor, which I'm very grateful for because I was able to do everything on my terms. Yeah, 100%. I mean, did you ever have to raise money or you're still the 100% owner? I'm 100% the owner. And the only one time, and I want to say raise money, but I took a loan was yeah. a $10,000 loan from my mom because she could realize that I was at this point where I was, things were going well from a production standpoint, but I was having challenges trying to uh, break into that kind of automation world mm-hmm. where you have like a bottling line. So I was still hand labeling mm-hmm. bottles and that gets challenging because you can only hand label bottles <laughs> so fast. And I was always um, adamant that the labels had to look like they were machine applied. So yeah. I would have these employees, including myself, that we would take a ruler and measure from the bottom of the bottle to a certain area, and that's where you would label it. So that was like labor intensive. Yeah. So my mother said to me, she's like, what's wrong? I said, mom, I just noticed as my business is growing, like I'm, I'm actually starting to lose money because I'm having this difficulty with efficiency. And she says, well, what do you need? And I said, I, I really need like a labeler, like this machine that I can run the bottles through and it labels it. And she's like, well, how much does that cost? I'm like, it's, it's like eight or $9,000. She's like, I'll give you $10,000, go get the labeler and then just pay me back when you have the money. And I paid her back in six months. Wow. And that was our first kind of eye-opening moment that, yes, you can be obsessive with the integrity of what you're making, but you have to find other efficiencies that don't affect the quality. So right. if you can automate the label, 
that's in my mind way better than doing it by hand. Hundred percent. And at some point, I mean, in terms of efficiency, like obviously, once you start hiring more people, you can spread out the work a little bit more, and it becomes more efficient. So, I guess at that point, when you had to start hiring people, I'm not, I'm not sure how deep into the business you were. Um, was it like hard for you to manage people, or was did it come naturally to you to just be like a natural leader, or or was it a challenge? It was, it was a combination because being kind of the obsessive, compulsive, passionate guy that I am, and I'm somewhat of a perfectionist. I think people like me all have this mentality of like, oh, they can't do it as good as I can. Mm. And if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. So I think the greatest thing that I struggled and, and to be honest, continue to struggle with is the art of delegation and trusting people. And I'm not saying trust in the sense like, I, I think this person's going to deceive me or turn on me. It's just having the trust more like confidence that this person is going to do, is going to make the kombucha as good as I can, or is going to pour their heart into it as much as I did. So there was this time, I would say probably for the first, because I my first employee was was in 19, well, technically 1996, but he was just labeling. Um, 97 is when I hired my first employee that actually was involved in the production of it. And I just remember like st- standing over his shoulders and just like watching him do it <laughs> and like critiquing every little thing that he did because I it was kind of like watching somebody hold your child. Right. So I was very concerned with that. But at a certain point, I had this kind of realization that if I truly want kombucha, which I believe is very special, to be shared with the world on a great, greater scale, I have to let go a little bit. And there are certain kind of checks and balances that I can put in place, very similar to what other people in a similar space have done, that will allow me to, again, grow the business, share the product with more people, but also make sure that the quality and integrity always remain intact. So it's a, it's a learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, once I, I was able to find trusted people, people that, again, treated my kombucha as if it was theirs, that's when I think things really started to take off. Was it early on when you realized that doing this was your passion, like doing this you know, helped you realize your identity? Or was there something else that helped you kind of get out of that crisis that you were going through in high school and into the person that you've become now, but also the leader that you become in the space in in your own business i mean what was it that really helped you realize that well there were several things so one is having purpose because i can't tell you how incredible it is to go from no purpose no passion no path to having a purpose having a passion and having a path that by the way is not just something that you feel is great but others feel is great as well I mean, that is like magic in my mind. So that was really kind of the driving force. To that point, I guess, before we, you go on, like how do how do people find that, right? Like we've talked to 150 plus founders at this point and, you know, we hear different stories from different people, but it's very hard to get a practical answer as to how does one find their purpose? How does one find their passion and then really pursue it, right? For you, I don't know if it was the spirituality. I don't know if it was just the act of doing things that helped you find your passion. But how do people find their passion or their purpose? What can they do? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's really the intersection of um, being to finding out what your skill set is and what makes you happy. And you really have to marry the two. Because a lot of people are good at certain things, but they hate it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and a lot of times mm-hmm. people do what makes them happy, but it's not necessarily like productive. So it's really finding the intersection of those two. So what I learned early on is I liked creating. I liked the physical creation of the kombucha. I loved the ceremonial aspect of it. I loved designing my own labels. I liked bottling it by hand. Um, And 
what I learned later on is I find happiness in making other people happy. So I was able to marry those two and that was it. I wasn't happy making money. Mm-hmm. Not that I was unhappy making money, but it really wasn't what kind of excited me um, because I, I was raised easy come, easy go. I'm curious, where did your like sort of creative side come from? Um, like where, when you were younger, like were you into art? Were you into, I don't know, anything cr- like creative or was it something that you just had the patience and, um, and discipline for to like teach yourself uh, along the way? Yeah, it was, it was a combination of things. So like, first of all, my mother, right? I, my parents were a very interesting kind of um, dichotomy, if mm. you will, where my father is a lawyer CPA, very business-minded, very dry, very risk-adverse. I mean, almost every answer to any question that he would give us was a no. Right? <laughs> like he just, when in doubt, just don't do it. And then on the flip side, you had my mother, who was like this artistic, philosophical, spiritual um, person that just was so curious about life and just like really um, loved to pursue the unknown. And so she, you know, she was big into astrology. She was in many, in many ways an artist herself. Like she would, had lots of personality from her style to the way she articulated herself to all those things. So I think I, I got a lot of the creativity, if not all of it, from my mother. Mm. And she, I think she always encouraged me just to think differently and encouraged me to be different. And so once I got out of high school, which is why it was so critical to leave high school, is yeah. I felt that that point of view was being suppressed. So once I was able to kind of unsuffocate myself, that's when the creative juices started to flow. Um, I also believe being, and this is going to sound weird, I think being a gay male mm. really allows me to harness more creativity than I think the average male, because in my mind, I think being gay, you almost have this weird combination of masculine and feminine. So you're like strong, yet you're creative, you're, you're soft, yet you're hard. It's this really, this interesting um, duality, if you will. But do you think that's something that's, is that more of a generalization or is that more something that you've realized of yourself? Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's certainly re- I realize about myself. I mean, I can't speak about others yeah. with the exception of what I've been able to observe, mm. right? I noticed that when people like even, and you don't have to be gay, right, by right, the right. way. I'm not talking about specific sexual orientation, right. but I'm thinking about, again, just having this balanced male and female point of view mm. because both genders have such incredible qualities and, it, and arguably they have potential deficiencies, Right, and I'm not here to stereotype, but again, sometimes women can be overly sensitive, mm. and sometimes men can be overly insensitive. So if you can find that balance where you're strong and you're tough and you have a thick skin and you're brave, but yet you're you're empathetic, you're compassionate, you're kind, you're curious, you don't maybe have a big ego. Like it's an interesting again mix of things that really can create some incredible art. Mm. Um, and I've noticed now in my my recent life as yeah. I, because I've become slightly a little bit of a wannabe art collector is I've noticed when I've interacted with artists in the contemporary art world is a lot of them, if not all of them possess similar traits and they don't have to be gay per se, but they have this interesting balance. Well, of artists expression, masculine. right? And, yeah. and, and if you don't, if you're not in tune with, it's not like the feminine side of, if you're a male, but um, if you're not in tune with like your more expressive side, like if you mention, you know, um, if females tend to be more expressive or, um, you know, more in tune with their emotions, then you're, then you might not even want to take that leap or take that risk to like put it out there into the world. 
um, whatever it might be, whatever you're creating. It might be an art piece. It might be um, something else. I don't know, furniture, like whatever it might be. It, you just maybe don't want to take that risk and you're more reserved. Yeah. You know, you you talk about yourself being such an obsessive person and, you know, it's been what, over 25 years since you started your company now, um, which, you know, I'm sure is crazy to think about being, you know, when you think about it. But what was your personal life like while you were building this company? Because a lot of founders that, you know, we talk to are just people that you generally know have been so hyper-focused on their business to the point that it's a detriment to their personal life. And, you know, they suffer if they're married, they suffer if they have kids, their kids suffer. If they're not married, then they have trouble getting married, whatever it is. How was your personal life? Were you able to create any sort of, you know, rhythm or balance while you were building this company? Not really. So, I mean, the best way to summarize the first 10 years of my career is it was very much like a single parent, right? So it was me and this um, form of life that I gave birth to, and it was just, we were in this together. And I basically existed to raise this child. And therefore, I mean, again, as I said earlier, going to bed at four in the afternoon and getting up at midnight, I mean, that's social suicide, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Sure. And I also was forced to sever ties with a lot of my friends and my social circles at the time is mm -hmm. because keep in mind, I had dropped out of high school, which is frowned on by your peers, right? You basically are tagged to drop out, mm -hmm. right? Now I'm Especially at that time. Especially like at that time, yeah. yeah. And so then in, in addition, I'm making this like bizarre fermented tea that anybody that was in my age range was like, this stuff's piss. Like, this is, it tastes weird, it smells weird, it's not going to go anywhere. So I remember I had friends that were now getting ready to graduate high school, and right. they were going to Berkeley and UCLA and SC, and they were so proud of their next path and their next chapter, and they were like, dude, so when are you going like, to give up this like, funky tea shit and like, just go back to school? You know, everybody's talking about, you're like a loser. And... And I remember actually that fateful night where one of my close, close friends said that to me. We were sitting on the sidewalk outside of my parents' house, and I said to her, I said, what makes you so sure? And she's like, well, I mean, come on. Like, you're not in school. You're making this bizarre thing. Like, you're, you're kind of a joke. And I was like, all right, great. And that day, next day, changed my number, stopped talking to everybody. Because I was like, listen, who are you to judge me? Just because you're going on more of your conventional path and I'm not, doesn't mean you're any better than I am. Yeah. And so that's why for the next 10 years, it was really a solo journey. And did you have like, I'm, I'm assuming, did you have this like motivation to like prove them wrong? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I had a motivation in many ways. One is I never, ever, ever want to go back to school <laughs> because I hated it. I hated how it made me feel. I hated the judgment. I hated the bullying. And then when I saw my friends through their own judgment against me, as well as the lives that they started to live, I could tell they weren't really that happy. And I was like, all right, well, I'm happy and I have a purpose and I'm just right. going to do me. Right. Yeah. I think it's the mindset of like, what are you optimizing for? Are you, are you optimizing for money and success or whatever that means? Or are you optimizing for happiness? And yeah. if you're optimizing for happiness, you might look at it from a whole different lens. And if your friends at the time were thinking about, you know, success as the people who are the most happy, then they might have been like, you know, supportive. Yeah. You know? So. No, it's true. Yeah. So when, I mean, you're 25 years old, you know at that point, like 10 years in, you talk about when do you start being social? When do you start actually saying, okay, maybe I do need like others around me or, or maybe not. I mean, did you ever have that sort of thought process? I totally did. So actually it was uh, around the 10 year mark where I was encountering some business challenges, right? Just the typical ups mm -hmm. and downs of having a business. And I, I realized I didn't really have like an outlet. 
And um, I had this kind of realization where I was like, I am actually living the life of like a 60-year-old. <laughs> I don't have any friends. I live to work. Um, yeah, I have some nice things that I've been able to, to provide for myself because I'm now running a successful company. But I think there's an aspect of my life now that I'm maybe not happy. And again, to me, being happiness is everything. Mm-hmm. You've got to do what makes you happy. And so that's when I started to become a little bit more social and started to, and I was very fortunate to quickly meet some people here in Los Angeles. And not everybody, but some of them were very tolerant to my work schedule. Because that was a big challenge. It's not like I didn't right. make any effort to meet people. It's I would, I would meet them and they'd rather A, judge what I was doing, or B, would almost require me to participate in certain things that they were doing, like going out for Friday night drinking or Saturday night drinking or clubbing or whatever. And if you said no to their request to go out with them more than like twice, they basically, you're dead to them. So, but again, back in like 2005, I was able to experience and interact with these newly found friends that I think at the time were just happy to know me and were like, hey, whenever you're free, let's hang out. And so then I slowly started to develop some friendships and it wasn't until I think like 2007, uh, 2008 when um, I threw my first party here in Los Angeles because it was actually a Valentine's Day party. And I was single and miserable and um, living with my mother still at the time. And Valentine's Day was going to be on a Saturday that year. And my mom was actually going out of town to visit my brother in Denver. And I said to my assistant at the time, who is actually one of my friends and peers, I said, hey, what do you think of like just throwing like a singles party this weekend? And he was like, that would be incredible. So that's what we did. And, you know, two weeks into it, it took two weeks of planning and uh, 250 people showed up and it like exposed me to this unique world of being able to socialize, but also socialize in an environment that you create. Right. right. And my yeah. big deal, and by the way, this party that I, I'm referencing is called Cupid Stupid. It's been going on now for over 10 years. And it's a staple here in Los Angeles because what I feel I've been very successful at is in, in creating this environment of inclusion where people can come. It's not about being pretentious. It's not about who's prettier than, than someone else. It's just coming in and having fun. And we do these games and performances and all this other stuff that really kind of gets people to, to drop their guards and then people get to connect. And that's what made me happy. And so that's kind of was the spearheaded my social life. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. I'll go for it. I was going to say, so, um, like, it sounds like it was like this work in progress until, until you know, it became, you know, more of a, I don't know, like, maybe other, like, people would consider it like a successful business, right? Like a, like a, like a business that they would see everywhere, like a brand that they would see all over the place if, if they went, walked into any Whole Foods or Erewhon or any supermarket. So at what point, like, did you feel like, all right, um, I think like I'm good. I don't have to worry about, you know, my career or I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, getting a job ever again and that kind of stuff. Was it pretty early on or was it more so towards more recently? Um, it's actually still not, hasn't happened. <laughs> like I still feel yeah. like I'm just getting started. Yeah. And that's just who I am, right? I think complacency is is a human cancer. And I think what drives me is this constant desire to be better and constant desire to do something. I'm, I'm always raising the bar. And it's a blessing and a curse, right? Mm. Because to some, I think the optics are like, oh, he's never happy. He's, mm. It's never good enough. But that's not the truth. The truth is, right. is I am happy. I'm happy in the journey. Mm. And I don't really feel that there is a destination. You know, maybe destination is my death. Right, where it's just like every day is an opportunity to be better. Every day is an opportunity to do something new that excites me. 
And so again, to this day, like that's why I work so hard. I mean, I was at the office till 2 a.m. last night. Um, and it's, it was a Friday night. And that's because, again, I don't do stuff because I feel that I need to. I, f- I do it because I want to, because I, I want to make something out of my life. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's what makes, it's, I think, the source of my ambition. I know you talked about being a wannabe art collector, but if you look at where we are now, it's not much of a wannabe thing. It's more so you're just like an art collector. How did you start getting into that? I mean, like, you had to obviously learn about some art history, I assume, or some sort of the art, the artist specifically, how did you have that process look like? Because I know a lot of people that, you know, that become passionate about that as they kind of get older, right? Even beyond like, you know, 60, 70 years old, they just start, okay, now we have money. Let's invest in some art. Yeah. What made you want to be that way? And what made you start learning about this world? You know, it was interesting. It, it just kind of happened. So what really was the beginning of my journey of art collecting is when I um, purchased my first home and then started to dis- to build build it out. And I remember that fateful day when I was looking at the floor plans. This is even before the first piece of framing went up. And the designer was saying to me, like, this is gallery one and this is gallery two and this is gallery three. And I was like, what is this gallery that you're referencing? They're like, oh, art. And I said, yeah, I'm not really into art. No, thanks. And they're like, don't worry, you will. And so again, I was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, be open-minded. And so what they did is they exposed me to this art advisor or art consultant who I still work with to this day. His name is Michael Thomas. And I remember that first day that he interviewed me as well as me interviewing him. And he asked me, like, what does art mean to you? And I said, well, I'm new to the art world, so I appreciate beauty. But most importantly, I appreciate the story behind the beauty. And he goes, that's exactly what I want to hear. He said, because art can be a lot of things. He said, to a lot of people, it's just an investment. It's just something that's pretty, you put on the wall, and if you play your cards right, it will increase in value. He said, but I don't like to work with clients that just think that way. I like to work with people that see art as this like gateway to creativity and a gateway to humanity and a gateway to personal expression. He said, because if you, if you really understand art, you'll understand what it's trying to say, mm-hmm. you'll understand what the artist is coming from, and all of that. And, you'll, and it, it'll start to have a conversation with you. And I also remember he said this, which I thought was so weird at the time. He's like, I see art as like friends. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I talk to my art and they talk to each other. <laughs> and I was like, all right, get the straight jacket. <laughs> but th- the interesting part is he really kind of framed art in a way that it was this personal journey. And so I took his advice and I went through this very slow and steady path of collecting art. And most importantly, understanding the meaning of the art and what it was trying to say and how it made me feel. And then once in a while, I'd have the opportunity to actually meet the artist and interact with them. And what I learned quickly, and now I subscribe to this in my personal life, is almost every great artist, and when I say great artist, I don't mean somebody that just makes something pretty, but I'm saying a great artist that makes things that are visually compelling and resonate with people, nine out of 10 times, they come from such a... Uh, an intense point of view about the world, about life. They're trying to make a statement and they're just doing that to do it. They don't do it because they want you to buy their art or they think it's going to go up in value. It's their expression. And so I, I learned that early on and I've in many ways subscribed to that now and, and apply that to the way I see my company and our products and our branding is again, this personal expression and in many ways a work of art. I know we're looking at this monstrosity, which people can't see because this is a podcast. Uh, but 
what, I mean, like, talk to us about this. I mean, I'm curious about the story. I mean, at the end of the day, like, we're literally called the Founder Hour, and we talk to people about their stories, but and less so about just the company, but really about the person behind it. But what is this painting about? Yeah, so this painting, um, and you're right, we can't see it. But maybe for, for those that are listening, it, yeah. but the artist's name is Jeff Elrod, and it's about um, 20 feet wide and about 12 feet tall, and it's an abstract piece, and it almost initially looks kind of like camouflage. Right, it's very yeah. blurry. It almost looks like camouflage or some kind of um, photograph that's highly, highly um, pixelated right. or or blurred. And what I love about work like this is that it's not; it doesn't hit you in the face. Right, right. You don't look at it like, oh, this is a boy holding a balloon in a prairie, mm. or this is like a, a landscape, or this is a sunset, or something like that. So to me, this, if you look at it, especially in what context you see it. Right, if you see it during the daylight or during the nighttime, it has kind of this light and this darkness to it. It has this life and death. You see faces, you see images, you see figures, and it like almost I see kind a of ghost. A ghost, and I see like a dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I see a person's face. Yeah, and a dog in the left, right? <laughs> yeah, and like a, that looks like a ghost. It also looks like a tree with a with a face on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I love this stuff because again, what art especially this type of art does to you, is it really starts to kind of poke holes or, or poke at your brain, if you will, right. right? It's kind of like, hey, think differently. Like, draw your own conclusions. What's your interpretation? What's, what meaning are you getting out of this? And that, in many ways, is how I live my life, whether it's art, whether it's my products, whether it's architecture, whether it's even how I personally um, express myself with my clothes or, or whatever, my personal styles. I think it's, it's important to kind of radiate this energy that, people kind of can interact with and, and kind of have a feeling for. Mm. I'm curious, do you ever, do you ever like see a day where you're not involved or like you don't want to maybe run your own company anymore and you just want to do something else? And do you have other like aspirations or other things that you want to accomplish? Or do you feel like GT's um, the company is just a part of your everyday life and you have no plan on moving, moving forward from it? No, I definitely have other desires and other um, aspirations. I mean, I see my company, as I said, and forgive me if this is an overused example, but a lot like having a child, yeah. right? So I see now the, my company, it's 25 years old. So it's in many ways its own adult. It's about to actually graduate from college and exactly. off to the working Yeah, working and world. so I'm hoping and praying <laughs> that everything I've done for the last 25 years has really formed it and framed it in a way that it's going to be something that I'm be very proud of, but ultimately it's going to eventually have to live its own life. It's greater than I am, and it will likely outlive me. But I just want to, but I obviously like a parent, whether your kid goes away to college or stays locally, you still want to stay connected with it, and you hope that they will find somebody they love and get married you know, to somebody they love and have a bright future. But I don't want to ever remove myself from my company. So I have no desire to sell. Mm. Because for many ways, I mean, as I said, kombucha and the other products we make are something so specific, it's just not transactional. So we don't make kombucha just to make it. We make it because we really want it to have an impact in people's lives. And I currently can't say that I'm confident that if I handed this over to someone else exclusively, that I would be happy and um, grateful for what they did. I, I think there's more risk there than reward. Mm. But to answer your question, I, I certainly do have other desires. Like I love, I love personal expression. And I love art. So I love architecture. Um, so that's something that, you know, I, I've, in my personal life, I've been able to design certain buildings, certain homes that I rather live in, or again, my business is based in. Um, you know, I love film and I love things that you can create 
like a, an expression, whether it's a photograph or even a short film or a long film where you can tell a story and maybe through that story kind of um, expose people to a certain way of thinking, which I think in many ways kombucha kind of does that in its own way. So stuff like that really much, very much excites me. I also have some philanthropic aspirations. Like, as I said earlier, I think our school system is kind of broken in this yeah. country. And very, very broken. Very broken. <laughs> so whether it's, you know, building a school or providing scholarships, because I really do feel that there are people that have certain talents, but just haven't been given the opportunity to explore right. those talents, maybe because they're not, they come from an underprivileged background or their socioeconomics or whatever. And I was very blessed to be exposed to different ways of thinking, not just academically, but also again, spiritually. So I'd love to create an environment for, you It's know, so funny you say that. Like we always talk, I'm like obsessed with this word exposure because I feel like I was similar to, as a kid where I, I feel like there's a lot of things I should have been exposed to that I wasn't exposed to because of wherever I was or the people that were around me. So I think that if we could, we just need to do a better job of, of exposing younger people to so many, uh, like, a, like a wider breadth of things um, that we just don't do a good job of right now. Yeah. So. Well, because the thing is, I think what's, I think, inherent in human nature is we fear the things that we don't know or that we fear the things that we don't understand. So if you look at a lot of like the divisive qualities that are in our culture right now, it's, it's really because I think through the internet and social media, we started to create these silos where, you know, I have my tribe and we all think this way and all of that, but we don't pay attention to anything around us. And if we do, we don't like it. But it's really making sure that we really are all one, you know, it's one human race. And regardless of your faith or your um, religion, your creed, your sexual orientation, your gender, your age. I mean, again, we're, we're all beautifully different. And what makes us different actually brings us together. So, but it's making sure that we're exposed to certain things of like, okay, I, I may think this way or I may live this way, but someone else lives a different way. And these are the reasons why. And it, it kind of humanizes all of us. But just to play devil's advocate here, whether it's like the point you just made or whether it's, you know, education or anything else in life, don't you think that it's almost better to discover that on your own and have that realization on your own like you had than to educate people to be exposed or to give them the exposure, like give them the information straight up? I, I mean, I don't know. For me, I think there's value to both, but finding it on your own and coming to your own conclusion is almost always better than what others are going to tell you, the refined information that you get. So I'm just curious what you think about that. Well, no, for, first of all, I'm not suggesting you force feed right. anybody, right? So again, as we were talking about, I think the exposure word or the definition of exposure is basically just to reveal, right? Right. It's to kind of lift that veil, open that curtain and say, hey, this is a way of life. This is a different culture. This is right. a different environment. Does you know, and listen to how you feel, or maybe like, just helping instill that characteristic in people to do that, to like be that open-minded and to to be more uh, maybe adventurous or yeah, seek you know, being a seeker as opposed to just being confined in their bubble and being okay with that. Absolutely. I mean, again, it, you can apply that to so many different things, even just like ways of eating. Right. right. I think we sometimes grow up thinking we have to eat a certain way. Mm -hmm. I'm an American diet or whatever. But if you can expose people to different cultures of food. Then you're like, oh, I like spicy, I like savory, I like fermented, and all these things. And it really is allowing people to draw their own conclusions. So that's right. what I mean by exposure is right. you, 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 you reveal a certain way of thinking, eating, living, whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. to somebody and let them listen to how that makes them feel. And if it makes them feel good, say, hey, why did it make you feel good? Mm. Like follow that, 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 right. follow that thread, if you will. Because again, you'll have certain realizations that 
perhaps will become a uh, revelation. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can sit here and talk all day, but I don't <laughs> want to take up too much of your time here. It's been a, it's been an amazing conversation and learning just about your story and the way you think and the way you approach life is, is amazing. I think uh, I took a lot away from it. I'm sure everyone listening did too. So um, appreciate the time and uh, we can't wait to see what you do next and the buildings that you create and design and uh, you know what you do with GTs and, and beyond that. So thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you. That was great connecting. I appreciate it. Yeah. Likewise.